Welcome to today's podcast. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, and it's my great pleasure to interview Dr. Mary Nevin, who will continue our series on core pulmonary information, which was originally presented at the international meeting in May. Dr. Nevin will be discussing core principles and core information in pediatric pulmonary disease. This was published in the December issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Dr. Nevin's major interests are in pediatric asthma and complex medical illness, where she is a clinician, researcher, and educator at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Without spending the entire podcast describing Dr. Nevin's wonderful credentials, we're going to ask some uh, questions and hear what she has to say. Mary, I just wanted to acquaint the audience with what pediatric pulmonary medicine is. What do you guys do mostly? When should an adult pulmonologist consult a uh, pediatric pulmonologist? What is sort of your cutoff? You know, in our area, there are a few pediatric pulmonologists, but not many. So I just wanted to get your input on that. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. It's a great question. I, I think that more often the pediatric pulmonologists are referring to the adult pulmonologist. Part of that ah. is that many pediatric diseases now have a lifespan that has never been encountered before in pediatric pulmonology. Some of the thoracic insufficiency syndrome, some of the neuromuscular disorders, and certainly CF are seeing increased lifespans. And so one of the things that we work with is optimizing the transition of care uh, to the adult pulmonary um, population of providers. But your question is actually very pertinent because as we increase our knowledge of pediatric pulmonary disease, of course, some of the things that come into that arena is genetic disorders. And so sometimes there will be a family tree that suggests a genetic predisposition to uh, pediatric pulmonary disease. And so many centers, including ours, are looking at rare lung disease centers. And we expect for pediatric and adult pulmonologists to collaborate closely in the management and clinical care associated with those centers. Does that answer your question? I think that's a good start, and we do work closely, certainly, with cystic fibrosis centers. Uh, We have both an adult and pediatric cystic fibrosis group who work as a team, and that's just one example. So um, looking through the uh, publication, I thought perhaps we could start with the problem of aspiration in children. And certainly that is, you know, a problem that I deal a lot with in the very elderly, but uh, I wanted to know uh, how you would frame the problem of aspiration in children. Who's at risk? Who should be treated? Let's hear what you have to say. Certainly. I think that part of the problem of the clinical problem of chronic dysphagia and aspiration is that it it has a very wide swath. Many children have nonspecific pulmonary symptoms for months to years before dysphagia and aspiration are considered as a contributor to these clinical problems. 
part of the difficulty is that the symptoms of chronic dysphagia and aspiration mimic many more common pediatric pulmonary diseases. So the child who is chronically aspirating can aspirate in one of two ways. They can aspirate in small volume, in which case the symptoms may be very mild or moderate and mimicking other diseases, we actually see the severe aspiration with a very large aspiration amount less frequently, and of course that's potentially life-threatening and and generally associated with severe hypoxia, sometimes a hospital or an ICU stay and the need for assisted ventilation. But the children who, and the infants who have smaller aspiration amounts and do so chronically may mimic bronchiolitis, uh, may mimic asthma, they may have shifting atelectasis on chest x-ray, they may have recurrent pneumonia of different lung segment locations, and they may be evaluated initially for immunodeficiency or congenital syndromes. Many of these children are treated for many months to years with albuterol or inhaled corticosteroids to treat their symptoms. So this is a diagnosis that really requires a very high index of suspicion, and there are many potential predisposing factors or conditions that we could go into next if you'd like. So who uh, might be at risk? Are these otherwise normal kids or are they kids with kind of identifying risk factors? So I'm I'm going to answer that in categories. There's actually several categories that predispose to dysphagia and aspiration. So the way that we look at this is that there is an anatomic risk factor. So children that have cleft lip and palate are at increased risk for dysphagia and aspiration. They have two mechanisms there. They have nasal refluxate of their feedings, and they may have gasping events and aspiration during those events. They also have oftentimes residue in their nasal cavity that then can fall into their airway after the infant has already had a functional swallow. There are other anatomic abnormalities that we know about well, like tracheoesophageal fistulas, but also vascular rings and slings and craniofacial anomalies place a child at risk. Developmental factors, so in answer to your question, children can look and act completely normally and still have dysphagia and aspiration. So our premature infants are at increased risk for dysphagia and aspiration because of the normal development of a functional suck-swallow-breathe response. Infants that are born prematurely have a less developed system in that regard and are at risk. And a term infant, again, completely healthy, can have something called fatigue aspiration, where they're completely normal through the first part of the feed, but at the end of the feed, their muscles fatigue out, their laryngeal protective reflexes protect their airway less efficiently, and then they aspirate at that point. And we also know that some parental behaviors place infants at risk for aspiration, including bottle propping. So if a child has a bottle propped into their mouth while they're falling asleep, during those periods of partial sleep or full sleep, they may continue to suck, but again, those laryngeal protective reflexes are decreased. Some of the things that we do for children also place them at risk. So children that require a tracheostomy, they have decreased efficiency of their mechanics. Specifically, they have decreased elevation uh, of their larynx because of the tracheostomy in place, and they protect their airway less effectively. So although a tracheostomy is sometimes placed for a child who is aspirating, it does not prevent the aspiration. It just allows better access to the trachea for suctioning. 
And one of the largest groups that we see with aspiration is our neuromuscularly weak population or neuromuscularly discoordinated population. So these are our children with myotonic and muscular dystrophies, the spinal muscular atrophy, also children that have had perinatal asphyxia and intraventricular hemorrhage, of course, greater degrees of intraventricular hemorrhage. All of those children are at high risk as well and certainly should be monitored closely for these swallowing problems. We also lastly talk about gastroesophageal predispositions to chronic dysphagia and aspiration. So gastroesophageal reflux, if it comes up and hits the point of the thoracic inlet and the larynx, basically will potentially decrease the sensitivity of the larynx to offensive stimuli because it's swollen and it's altered from that acid content in the refluxate. And then that can allow a child to uh, aspirate who might not if they did not have gastroesophageal reflux. Well, I think it's interesting what you said, and uh, right after we're done, I have to call an 82-year-old who amazingly has a right-sided aortic arch with a uh, sling that is compressing her, both her trachea and esophagus, accounting for aspiration. And I recently saw a 17-year-old with a double aortic arch. So you'd like to think that before age 82, these problems would have been picked up, but here we are. So again, there's a lot of relevance and crossover between pediatric and adult pulmonology. I guess we can say that uh, adults are just older children. <laughs> we used to say that infants were little adults, and then so it doesn't work that way. It probably doesn't work the, uh, the way that you just mentioned either, but it, but it is a continuum, right? And so uh, young or old, protecting lung function is good at any age. Yeah, I apologize for the you know, alarm just going off, but uh, there you go. So what comes to mind is... So we have either a, an older child or a teenager, which may be a, referred to either a pediatric pulmonologist or an, an adult pulmonologist. When should we think about pulmonary function testing in children? Are the indications the same? And what are the pitfalls in performance? You know, can a three-year-old do pulmonary function testing? Uh, when can you expect performance in this important modality? Again, a great question. There are many options open to us with pulmonary function testing. So the pulmonary function test that most people think of for spirometric indices, so forced vital capacity, forced expiratory volume in one second, and then those lower airway flows, the FEF, forced expiratory flow in 25th to 75th percentile, all of those are obtained through spirometric indices. Children generally need to be five years or greater to do a standard spirometric test. It requires a six-second exhalation period and a forced exhalation, so a maximal forced exhalation. And children need to do this just like adults. They need to do it acceptably and reproducibly, so that meaning that they need to empty out their lungs to residual volume and they need to plateau on their volume time curve. 
that's very difficult for a child to do of three to four years of age. Rarely we see a four-year-old that can do it. More often we try it at school age when they're more able to follow instructions. And oftentimes we'll see a six or seven-year-old who is still not able to uh, perform testing with acceptable and reproducible technique. Having said that, there are lots of emerging or develop, further developing techniques that arch into that younger population. So there's been some groundbreaking work in preschool pulmonary function testing that Stephanie Davis and Clement Wren and several others have worked closely on. And tidal breathing measurements take some of that difficulty away. So there are several tidal breathing measurements that can be made. These are generally made by either direct assessments of flows this is a modification of spirometric techniques that can be used in preschoolers, and about 50 to 60% of preschool children can do these modifications. It involves a, a shorter period of time of forced exhalation. And you can also have an option of forced oscillometry where children do not have to have a forced exhalation. They just simply need to have their mouth on a mouthpiece and the respiratory system impedance in that situation is measured at the mouth in response to an oscillatory pressure wave that is generated by a loudspeaker and applied to the mouth that way. There are others, including respiratory interrupter technique, where you have a brief occlusion during the passive expiratory phase of tidal breathing, and then you measure the flow and mouth pressure during the, that occlusion. So there's this variety of techniques that are available. There's also the more classic, what is called the infant pulmonary pulmonary function test, colloquially. The children who do the infant pulmonary function test, they have to be sedated for that test, and it's operator intensive. So children need to be sedated. They wear a bladder basically around their chest in that sedated position, and the bladder is inflated and then compressed to mimic the expiratory maneuver mm. that older children achieve. Of course, that, as I mentioned, that requires sedation. Uh, yeah, so I guess there's a lot of discussion about cost-benefit of such an intervention. This came to mind as well, and I think a lot of adult and e pulmonologists are interested as well. Uh, how useful is exhaled nitric oxide to you, what do you think of the test, its value, and in general, and for your pediatric asthma patients? The exhaled nitric oxide is an, a relatively easy test to do in the pulmonary function lab, and there has been some back and forth, some conflicting data on the usability of nasal nitric oxide testing in directing therapy or in determining adherence with medical therapy. So given that exhaled nitric oxide is a, a marker of inflammatory change, and so early on exhaled nitric oxide held some, has held some promise for both monitoring severity of disease, and this is particularly useful in children and adolescents who have poor perception of their asthma severity. That can be because of just poor perception, period, or it can be because of chronicity of disease. Again, if you breathe with somebody else's lungs who doesn't have asthma, you might have a better idea of how severe your own asthma is, but this is something that we not uh, unusually deal with in pediatrics, and I'm sure you do in adult medicine as well. 
So some of the peak flow or exhaled nitric oxide measurements that we may not usually use in our greater population of patients, some of those can hold promise, like I said, when you have a child uh, or an adolescent or an adult, uh, for that matter, who is a poor perceiver of symptoms, and you're really trying to kind of get additional insights into what is causing their decline in lung function or their symptomatology. In terms of adherence to medications, that's another area that held promise. So again, we know that we talk about non-adherence a lot, but it's actually quite hard to use these medications twice a day, every day, to use proper technique to take the holding chamber along with you so that you're not depositing the medication on the back of your tongue and the back of your throat and not getting the medication benefit. But we, of course, like you, run into a lot of problems with non-adherence for all of the reasons that I've, that I've stated. And exhaled nitric oxide has held some promise in that area as well. As I said, I believe, including at the most recent international conference for the American Thoracic Society, I believe that there's some conflicting information that goes back and forth about exactly how usable that exhaled nitric oxide data is going to be. But I believe that those studies continue, and I expect more information to follow. Do you use it routinely or just selectively? I personally use it selectively. There are colleagues of mine, excellent colleagues of mine, that use it routinely. So I believe that's you know really provider-dependent. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, I certainly have learned a lot. I know uh, which particular pediatrician, even though I'm in New York and she's in Chicago, I'm sending all my patients to Dr. Nevin, and I want to uh, thank you for a wonderful brief tour of important information in pediatric pulmonology, and I would recommend the article in the December issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, and once again, thank you for taking the time to share with our readership. So for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society and the ATS, this is Dr. Alan Fine, and wishing you all a wonderful and perhaps less snowy day.